Welcome to The Bible in Our Culture, a radio show sponsored by Liberty Remnant Church. Hi, I'm Pastor Jay McPherson, and welcome to our first ever radio show. It's always been imperative God's people view the culture through the lens of the Bible. Please don't view the Bible through the lens of today's culture. Way too many Christians take what they feel in the culture and what they learn in the culture, and then they go and look at the Bible and try to impose the culture's values on the Bible. That's never going to work. We are committed to understanding that we must look at today's culture through the lens of the Bible. That is the perspective by which you view anything important. I'm talking morals, values, priorities, anything in the spiritual world. We must view this through a biblical worldview. Otherwise, the culture has a way of squeezing us into its mold. It's difficult to swim upstream in the culture, but I believe that's precisely what God is asking of his church in this hour. And I believe that's what God is empowering his church to do in this hour. Swim upstream, hold fast to biblical values, regardless of whatever the culture may say. So we need to know what the Bible has to say, what God has to say about the meaty, moral, hot topic, controversial issues of today's culture. If you think about it, most of these hot topic issues in our culture, the Bible has a lot to say about. Whether it's abortion, whether it's marriage and sexuality, transgenderism, even boundaries and borders, the Bible has principles to live by. And it is our duty to apply biblical principles to today's culture. I think Jesus talked a lot about this in one point at Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 or 14. He says, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. So Jesus is talking about two different gates, two different ways, two different groups. Those who go the wide through the wide gate and the broad way, that's going to end in destruction. Many do this. This is following the crowd. This is just going along with popular opinion and letting the culture dictate to you how you're going to live. But Jesus says there is a few, a remnant, who will go down the narrow gate and the narrow path. This leads to life. So another story in the Bible that I feel has the same principle in mind is in Numbers 13. Numbers 13 is a key moment in Israel's history. They, as you probably know the story, God delivered them out of Egypt, out of slavery, with 10 plagues and parting the Red Sea and then drowning Pharaoh's army in Red, the Red Sea and led them through the wilderness with all sorts of miracles. They got up to the promised land at Kadesh Barnea and they stood there and were going to go scout out the land. It was as if, if you want to borrow a football analogy, as if the ball was on the goal line after a long drive in the final minute of the Super Bowl. All they had to do was just punch it across. The same God who had worked miracles to get them out of Egypt, 
through the wilderness and up to the promised land was going to deliver the promised land to them if they would just submit to him and obey. There they were on the goal line. As long as they didn't turn it over, as long as they didn't try anything silly, they were going to inherit the promised land by God's plan. But if you know the story, they turned it over. Well, God had an opinion about that. He didn't want them to do anything but trust them and acknowledge that his love and character that brought them this far would take them the rest of the way. To enjoy so many miracles, all sorts of different kinds of miracles and daily miracles, you would think they could trust God's character. But at this test, at this key moment in their history, the question was, do they have the faith to believe God would continue to act according to his character? And I think God asked the same thing of his church today. Do you have faith that God will act according to his character? I think there's a lot of Christians, churches, pastors, who are a little unsure about that. They're intimidated by what they see in the promised land, and so they play it safe. Well, as we look at Numbers 13, the beginning of the chapter, Moses sent a spy to spy out the land, one from each of the 12 tribes to cross the Jordan and do a military scouting event and check out the promised land, to reconnoiter the battle plan, the battleground, if you will. And it says in verse 23 of Numbers 13, then they came to the valley of Eshkol and there cut down a branch with one cluster of grapes. They carried it between two of them on a pole. So this was a huge cluster of grapes. And then in verse 26, we read that now they departed and came back to Moses and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation, congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. I'm assuming they showed him the big old cluster of grapes. Then they told him and said, we went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey. And this is its fruit pointing at the cluster of grapes. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. And so they complained about the promised land that God was giving them. But in verse 30, it says, Caleb, one of the 12 spies, quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and take possession for we are well able to overcome it. But the men who had gone up with him, the other uh, 10 spies said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out saying, the land through which we have gone as spies is a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great stature. There we saw the giants, the descendants of Anak came from the giants and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight. And so we were in their sight. And on that positive note, chapter 13 of Numbers ends. Pretty strange, I think, because in verse two, the Lord was clear he said, this land, the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. God was giving the land. And if so, there should be no doubt, especially considering 
God's track record with them. He afflicted plagues on the Egyptians to get them out of Egypt. He opened the Red Sea. He provided manna for them. He, he led them with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He was doing all sorts of miracles. He had given them the land way back in Abraham's day. I don't know how many times God told Abraham, I've given you this promised land. He is giving it to them, and he will give it as they submit to him and obey and cross the Jordan and go take it. So the question is, was God giving the land or were they taking it? Well, I believe the answer is yes on both accounts. God was giving them the land, but they had to go take it. They had to respond to him in faith and obey and go into the land and dispossess the giants and take what he was giving them. It's the same in my life and yours. God wants to give us his blessings, give us his promises, but we got to walk it out. We got to accept it by faith and act on it. That was the test that these children of Israel were facing. So the question so we go back to the early part of the chapter. Why did God send a representative from each tribe to spy out the land? Could it be God likes to work through representation of the people in political matters? Because that's what this was. They were uh, having a political decision to go take the land, and there was representation. One from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. I think God likes representation. I think this was a little uh, picture of a republic. And I think God took one from each of the 12 tribes because he was testing their faith as a whole. He was testing the whole people through representation. Now, when God tests us, it's not so he can learn what our true hearts are. It's not so we can learn if we pass the test. God knows the end from the beginning. So before he gives a test, he knows what the outcome is going to be. But he tests us nonetheless so that we know where our heart's at, so that we know whether we can believe him and submit to him. If we, if we pass, then we have confidence that God was faithful. But if we fail, then we know we have to repent. So it's unlike school when you grew up. When you were in class, your, your teacher had to know if you had learned the material. And so she would give you a test so she would know whether you aced it, whether you really knew the material, whether you barely passed, or whether you failed. So a test was a way for the teacher to determine if you really knew the material. But with God, it's way different. God already knows. He tests us so we know. In verse 18 of Numbers 13, we see that Moses is giving a little pep talk, giving instructions as he sends the 12 spies into the promised land to see what the land is like, whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, few or many, whether the land they dwell in is good or bad, whether the cities they inhabit are like camps or strongholds, whether the land is rich or poor, and whether there are forests there or not. And then he ends verse 20 by saying, be of good courage. That's interesting. I've always thought courage was good. Uh, it's different than boldness, in my opinion. I see boldness can be good or bad. Somebody can be bold because they're cocky and they have a huge ego. And somebody can be bold because they're uninformed. They're, they're stupid 
And so therefore they are bold because they don't know enough to fear. But to me, courage has been always a good thing. And sometimes when you have good courage, you're silent. But sometimes when you're courage, often I think you speak up. So when Moses says, be, cur- be of good courage, I think I could paraphrase the situation that he might be saying something like, when you look at this situation of the promised land, be sure to look at it through an attitude of courage. I think Moses was saying, let the level of courage you have be great. Moses reminded them the task before them requires them to bring their best courage to it. In other words, they were going to go see the enemy. They're going to see some good things and bad. But as they look at all these things, they had to have good courage. It'd be really easy to look at the giants and have fear. Look at the giants and feel insecure. But Moses is saying, hey, don't do that. Have good courage. And I really feel like this story is very similar to where the American church is at today. Are we going to have courage or are we going to look at the giants, look at the enemy, look at all their resources and freak out? Let's have our best courage. Because if we look at what's happening, it can be pretty intimidating. There's a lot of crazy stuff going on. A few weeks ago, there was a Juneteenth celebration. I'm all for celebrating Juneteenth. I've often thought we need a anniversary to, a holiday to commemorate the end of slavery. I think that's been a huge victory in America's history. So let's celebrate the emancipation of the slaves. Well, the Emancipation Proclamation was in effect on January 1st. So you can't really have a holiday when we already have a New Year holiday. And the 13th Amendment was ratified towards the end of December, right about Christmas time. So you can't really use that date as a holiday. But there were slaves in Galveston, Texas, that never heard the Emancipation Proclamation until on June 19th, the Union Army came and said, hey, you guys are free. And so they celebrated on June 19th, call it Juneteenth, and every year on June 19th, they celebrated the end of slavery. So I thought, this is great. We should go ahead and celebrate with them the end of slavery in America. Well, I'm concerned, though, that people are trying to hijack the principle behind this end of slavery. On June 13th, the White House lawn, they were having a celebration for Juneteenth on June 13th. I don't know why. And Kamala Harris got up and said, and I quote, extremists across our country attempt to ban books and erase history, end quote. What is she talking about? Who is banning books? Who's trying to erase history? At the same event, a little while later, President Joe Biden gets up to the microphone and says, and I quote, choose love over hate, choosing to remember history, not erase it, to read books, not ban them, end quote. Well, what history books are their opponents trying to ban? I haven't heard anything, but I should be really concerned. You should be really concerned. If somebody's trying to ban history books and erase history, well, I think they're stretching it. In fact, I think they're just telling big lies. The only books that I'm aware of being banned are these hideous, sexually explicit, virtually pornographic, if not pornographic, so-called sex ed books. These books are too foul to recite. 
seen video clips where parents and pastors go to a, a school board meeting to protest these books and say, we don't want our kids having access to this material at all. One pastor was quoting, reading from one of these sex ed books, and the opponents, those who wanted these so-called sex ed books in the school, said, hey, you can't talk that way. That's inappropriate. And he's right. What I heard, I don't ever want to hear again. Nobody should ever have to hear what this pastor read at a school board meeting out of these textbooks. So they didn't think it was appropriate that he read it. Well, but they wanted him approved for children? Are you kidding me? I think they've lost touch with reality. So we could be intimidated when we see the lying going on. We see politicians lying and we see the state media, sometimes called the fake news, working as a propaganda machine for the secular humanist and to push what I think is an evil agenda. Here in the state of Washington, we've seen something like this. I hope you've heard of Bill 5599. It's terrible. It's wicked. But for some reason, our elected representatives in the state legislature passed this bill in both houses and the governor signed it into law. This bill, 5599, has a long list of atrocities. Basically says if somebody runs away from their parents, you can't tell their parents that they're running away if they're looking for two quote-unquote medical procedures. One is a sex change procedure, genital mutilation on kids. If a child is seeking that, the parents uh, cannot be notified. It's basically legalized kidnapping, and it totally usurps the parents' rights. The other procedure that a young person can get without their parents' permission or even knowing is an abortion. So as you can see, it ends parental rights. It allows for kidnapping and it's about to do some very hideous, uh, life-altering changes on children that should never be a part of anybody's train of thought. So we have Referendum 101. We're going to reject 5599 with Referendum 101 and put that on the ballot for the voters to approve. But we only have a few days left, so I'm encouraging you to make sure you sign Referendum 101 if you're a Washington voter because this would be a huge victory if we can reject it. And I think it would be a huge testament on our faithfulness if we don't reject it. As somebody who loves God and has the authority as a Washington voter to sign such a referendum, I feel it's imperative to do so. We got to continue with courage in this fight. We are well able to overcome it. But don't be afraid. Don't be a coward. There's a fight going on everywhere. So Kentucky, Tennessee, and Arkansas, I understand, passed bans on this genital mutilization that is erroneously called gender care. They forbid that that could happen to children in their states. But a judge overturned the law. What? How do you overturn such a wicked, evil law? So those states are now fighting the battle in the legal realm. And here we got to fight against our legislatures who've done something terribly wrong and fight with Referendum 101. But my point is, it's intimidating when you look at what's happening, if you look at it through 
the eyes of your own strength and resources. I'm not one that says we should just uh, really focus on our political tactics and, and we should apply political technology and we should trust in our resources and our ability to, to earn money and, and try and do this in our own strength. We need God's help. We need to submit to God. I believe he wants to see this referendum passed and this nasty bill overturned and things like it all across our nation. But we're going to need to do it in his power. We're going to need to submit to him. He might be asking us to do it in a different way. He might be asking us to share our testimony more. Share Jesus with people. Hey, you know, i got to tell you what Jesus has done for me. This is how I came to know that he was real. This is how I know that he's forgiven me of my sin. That might be a very effective political tactic. And I think it's important that we submit to God and make that perhaps the number one way that we're going to win back our state, win back our nation. In verse 27 of Numbers chapter 13, it says, And then they told him, these are the, uh, the ten spies that uh, were fearful. They told him and said, We went to the land where you sent us. It truly flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. Well, the fact that the land was prosperous exactly as God had promised was reason to, reason to logically conclude that God could be trusted. Supernatural grapes were evidence of God's credibility. If he says it's a land flowing with milk and honey, their promised land, and they get there and they got grapes so big they have to tie it to a, a, one cluster to a pole and have two guys carry it, that says that God's doing even more than they thought. So everything looks like God is going to continue his same miraculous power to eradicate their enemies out of their land and possess it. But they use this terrible word. It's a very important word. Despite that it's a land flowing with milk and honey and this is its fruit, nevertheless, God thought that was an accusation against him. It's as if they're saying, God was faithful in everything he has said and did, but nevertheless, we see reasons we can't trust him. That's terrible. It's as if they're saying, God, we have giant grapes as evidence you were absolutely right about all you promised us. But nevertheless, it's not going to work. God, you were absolutely amazing and supernaturally delivering us from slavery and faithfully and miraculously providing for us as you led us safely through the wilderness to this spot. But nevertheless, we don't think it's going to work out. That's terrible. Now, I would look at it this way. What are we, how are we going to apply that to today? Well, I believe God could bring revival to America. But nevertheless, there's too much corruption. There's Christians who talk that way. I don't think it can be tolerated any longer. Some say something like, well, I believe God loves America. But nevertheless, government elitists cheat in elections since Dino Rossi was elected governor. They stole it away. So it's all doom. Might as well give up. There's a lot of people that believe God loves America, that believe God has the power to save us, to bring revival, to bring reformation, but they have their nevertheless. God calls that wickedness. If you continue to read in the next chapter, Numbers 14, God wants to disinherit them. God wants to kill them because he's upset that they would accuse him of not being faithful. 
So yes, we are aware. We want to be aware of cheating and corruption and lies. But as we look at these giants in the land, we can't toss away our courage. We can scout out the land and should, but we have to keep our faith in what God can do, especially in this hour. We live in an important time. It's a great time to be courageous, a great time of opportunity, and all it takes is a remnant. So in verse 30, Caleb models what it means to be part of God's remnant in his hour. It says, then he, Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. I hope you have that remnant spirit that Caleb had. After a lot of belly aching at God, Caleb sticks his neck out and tries to lead the conversation in a faith-filled direction. Caleb wasn't belly aching, but all of his countrymen started to belly ache. There weren't polls back then, but Caleb could see that public opinion was against him. It would have been admirable against that type of peer pressure if Caleb had merely spoke up and said, hey, I think we got a shot at this. You know, God could uh, give us a big victory if he has favor in us. That would have been cool if he would have said that. But I'm impressed that instead he was emphatic. He said, let's go up at once and take possession for we are well able to overcome it. Do you sense that in your spirit? Do you sense that remnant mentality that Caleb had? Well, the men who had gone up with him in verse 31, they said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we. And they gave the children of Israel a bad report of the land, which they had spied out. That word bad report is one word in the Hebrew. It's debah. Debah is used nine times in the Old Testament. It's usually translated slander or defaming, sometimes evil report. These 10 spies gave a slanderous, defaming, evil report of the land. The word debah is never used in a neutral way of assessing losses. It's not like it was an objective report that included unfortunate statistics, budget analysis, job review, that type of thing, where you've got some good to look at and some bad to look at. No, this word debah means they slandered and defamed God's orchestrated plan. I wonder how many believers are doing that today. Evil reports, tabahs, are often true in the facts associated with them, but wrong in the outcome they produce. Evil reports set your focus on the wrong facts or in the wrong direction. I think there's way too many Christians that give evil reports, that slander God. Their facts are true. Yeah, people maybe cheated in the election and they're uh, perverting our kids, all sorts of things to complain about. But we have to understand that God is well able to lead our nation into reformation and awaken us to his purposes. Rec recognizing that secularists get mean, nasty, and aggressive is no reason to change our plans. Our focus should be we are well able to overcome it. Thank you so much for being with us on our pilot radio broadcast. My name is Pastor Jay McPherson, and our program, The Bible in Our Culture, is sponsored by Liberty Remnant Church. Check us out at libertyremnantchurch.org. Hope to see you next week at the same time.